So when the when the drink came, he paid the waitress and he took his glass and he clinks my glass and cheers me. And then he says, wow. you know, this is the first time I ever sat down and had a drink with a black man. Hey guys, thanks for joining me again. I'm excited for this one. My guest is Daryl Davis. Daryl is an amazing musician whose side hustle is meeting with Klan members and neo-Nazi groups. Did I mention Daryl's black? Yeah. (laughs) He engages in dialogue with white supremacist groups. Daryl's nickname is the Klan Whisperer due to the fact that he's been directly and indirectly responsible for hundreds of Klan members and neo-Nazi groups shedding their beliefs and turning in their robes. He's done tons of interviews on television, Newsweek articles, Joe Rogan podcast, TED Talks, lectures, and he's written a book called Clandestine Relationships. You got to check this guy out. All right. Uh, I'm excited for this one, you guys, because I have a, a great human being here. And I mean that sincerely. Uh, Daryl Davis, musician, an angelic presence on the planet, <laughs> 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 a peacemonger, should I say? <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't want to uh, interrupt your uh, your flow. But tell us who you are. And uh, well, I'm I'm Daryl Davis. I'm a 64 year old. I'll be 65 by the end of this month. But uh, I'm a musician, I'm an actor, I'm an author, and uh, wow. I am a race reconciliator oh, and a lecturer. Yeah. I got my degree in music from uh, music performance from Howard University in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love people. I love, you know, as a, I'll put it this way, mm. as a professional musician, yes. I have my own band. And as a band leader, my job on stage is to foster harmony amongst the voices on my stage, whether they right. are the the vocal voices, you know, the singers, or yeah. the instrumental voices, whether it's the saxophone, piano, bass, drums, guitar. I want them to blend in harmony. Yeah. The only time that you want dissonance in your music is if you intentionally inject it into the music for effect. Like right. you know, in a in a horror movie, you might hear something weird sound real quick. <laughs> right, right. Else, you know, that's intentional to to bring your emotions up. Mm-hmm. All right, but if dissonance happens randomly, that's mm-hmm. not music. That's noise. That's because somebody hit a bad note or something. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. so as my job as a musician is to bring harmony between the voices on the stage. Right. When the gig is over. And I step off the stage and I'm in society. Yeah. I want harmony around me. Right, right, right. Like a conductor. Like Exactly. A... Exactly. Well, f- well, first of all, you didn't have to tell us your age. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to snitch. <laughs> hey, listen, I, I'm, I'm still on the right side of the dirt. So. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> That's amazing. So, you know, it's funny. Uh, so you're called the Clan Whisperer. Do you like that? Among, among many other names. <laughs> I've, listen, man, I've been called every name but my own. Right, right. But, uh, right. I, yeah, people call me the Klan Whisperer. People call me the Rock and Roll Race Reconciliator. You know, I, uh, I, I answer to it all. doesn't matter. 
Now, just stats wise, how many plan uh, members is it or or that have you converted or? Well, you know, let me say this. Um, I stopped counting, but I don't like to say that I converted anybody because I really right. didn't convert them. Got I am it. the impetus for them to convert themselves. Wow. And uh, last count, it was just over 200. Wow. But, you know, but but understand, you know, I've been doing this for about 41 years now. So right. it's not like, you know, all of a sudden 200 got out last year because of me or something. <laughs> right. Well, it's not yeah. an overnight. It's, right. a, it's a marathon. It's a journey. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I've, I've been observing you for a while. And to me, I'm like, how has this brother not gotten the Nobel Peace Prize? Like that is, to me, what you do is magnanimous and amazing. And I don't even use those words. I had to look those words up just to describe <laughs> it. <laughs> well, thank you. Has anyone ever spoken to you about, are you are you on the short list for a Peace Prize or anything like that? Not that I'm aware of, no. That's fascinating. You do have a, a movie out and it's called um, Accidental uh, Courtesy. Courtesy. Right. right. And, I, and I think you described that it sort of coincides with your musical prowess. Right. How you even came up with the name. Right. And what it's called in music is a courtesy accidental. Uh, and it so just flipped it. They just flipped it. Exactly. <laughs> and that movie is about the uh, sort of your um, your work and what you do and uh, sort of you coinciding or talking to the clan members and, and various groups about coming together. Right. Yes. Okay, so my first question is, is like in that uh, particular documentary, you sort of you said the thing that sparked your whole journey into talking to uh, clan members and uh, hate groups is that you said uh, the thought was, how can you hate me if you don't know me? Correct. Right. So my question is, well, who are you? <laughs> well, apparently I'm somebody that's hated. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know why, right? Right, right. Yeah. But, you know, in order to understand that, we have to go back mm -hmm. to my childhood, right. which is which is also why I gave you my age. Um, uh. But, you know, when I, uh, I started traveling the world at the mm -hmm. age of three in 1961, wow. I right. was born in 1958. And my my uh, father was in the U.S. Foreign Service, so State Department. So I I grew up as a you know I grew up as an American embassy kid. So it was um, my mother, my father, and myself. So every two years we would live in a different country, and then w when the two years was over, we would come back home here to the states. We'd be here for a few months, and then get assigned to another country for two years, back and forth, back and forth. I lived on the continent of Africa for ten years. I lived in in wow. uh, Europe. I, you know, I visited many different countries. Uh, as you pointed out today, I'm a professional musician. Mm. When you take my childhood travels with my parents growing up, and now my adulthood travels as I tour around the world performing or lecturing, yeah. put them together, I have now been in a total of 62 uh, countries on six continents. Wow. And I've played in all 50 of our states here. So, wow. you know, I've been exposed to just a multitude of skin colors, ethnicities, mm. uh, cultures, religions, ideologies, right. all of that has helped, uh, you know, impact who I have become. So my first exposure to school was overseas. Mm -hmm. I did uh, kindergarten, uh, first grade, third grade, fifth grade, seventh grade, 
all in different countries. You know, when you go to school for the first time, that becomes your impression of right. what school should be, right? Your first mm -hmm. exposure to it. And so overseas, all of my classes, no matter what country I was in, were full of kids from all over the world. Because right. if if some other country had an embassy where we were assigned, mm -hmm. all of their kids went to the same school. So my classmates, whether it was kindergarten, you know, first grade, third grade, whatever, my classmates were from Nigeria, from Japan, from Russia, from Czechoslovakia, France, Germany, Italy, Sweden, you name it. If yeah. they had embassies there, we all were in school together. And even though, you know, color was never an issue, never right. an issue. All right. Um, the people, my, my classmates, some of them didn't speak English. Mm -hmm. Maybe they didn't look like me. Uh, maybe they didn't worship the way I did. Mm -hmm. But we all got along. We worked together. We played together. Uh, we had slumber parties together. You know, racism <laughs> was not an issue. What year was this? Around well, start, starting in 1961, I was wow. three years old. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, like I say, I'd come back every two years. Sometimes I would do a grade here. You know, might be here right, for right. for a school year and then go back overseas. Mm -hmm. Well, one time when I came back, it was 1968. And I was age 10. But prior to this, 1968, whenever I'd come back, I was always in uh, black schools. Oh, you know, okay. because... Desegregation. You know, you, exactly. And, right. and even though desegregation was passed by our U.S. Supreme Court in 1954, yeah. which is four years before I was born, right. schools did not integrate overnight. You know, mm -hmm. blacks didn't didn't live with whites in the same neighborhood. Right. So you know, it was a geographical thing as well. So it took a while. But anyway, uh, I was always in black schools. So mm -hmm. now, in 1968, I'm back here, and um, I am now one of two black children in the entire school. I'm in fourth grade. There was a little black girl in the uh, second grade. So you know, really, I didn't see her because you know she's two grades behind me. Right. My my uh, peers were my grade. So all of my friends in that case were white. And several of my uh, male friends were members of the uh, Cub Scouts. And they uh, invited me to join the Cub Scouts. I joined. I was the only black scout anywhere in the area. Mm -hmm. And one day we had a parade with uh, the scouts and some other organizations. And the streets were blocked off. Both sides of the street sidewalks were lined with nothing but white people, and they're waving and cheering and smiling until mm. we got to a certain point in this parade when I began getting hit oh. with us uh, with soda pop cans and bottles and uh, just small debris from the street. And you're just, a kid. I'm a kid. I'm ten years old. Wow. And you know, I had no clue what was going on. All I knew was I got hit. I turned to look from where the thing is coming, these things are coming. And I mean, it's a large crowd, but there are only about four or five people who were throwing things. At least two of them were kids, maybe a year or two older than me. I didn't know them. And and two adults. So I assumed it was their parents. You know, they were throwing and yelling and wow. you know, all kinds of stuff. And um, my first thought was, you know, oh, these people over here on the sidewalk, they don't like the scouts. That's how naive I was. Right, right, right. I did not realize that I was the only scout getting hit until my 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 Cub Scout troop leaders came and covered me with their bodies. You know, wow. these were white people. 
They covered me with their bodies and right. quickly escorted me out of the danger. I kept saying, why, why, why are they hitting me? I, I didn't do anything. What did I do? And all they would do is, you know, shh, rush me and shush me and rush me along, tell me, keep moving, keep moving. Everything will be okay. Well, I kept moving. But they never answered my question as to why this was happening. Oh. And so at the end of the parade, I went home. Mm-hmm. And my my parents, who were not at the parade, uh, they were putting Band-Aids on me and cleaning me up and asking me, how did you fall down and get all scraped up? I told them I didn't fall down. I told them exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. And for the first time in my life, my mm-hmm. mother and father sat me down and explained to me what racism was. Wow. Now, understand, at the age of 10, right. I had never heard the word racism. I had no clue what they were talking about. That word did not exist in my life, in my sphere. When I was overseas, I was around people from all over the world. And nobody threw rocks and bottles at people. Right. You know, why would I know this word? Um, My, you know, I did not believe my parents for the first time in my life. I'm an only child. So whenever I had a problem or a question, I went to my Mm -hmm. mom and dad. But on this day, I knew, yeah. I knew that my mom and dad were lying to me mm. because my 10-year-old brain could not process the idea that someone who never saw me before, who knew nothing about me, would want to hurt me for no other reason than the color of my skin. So, and furthermore, to my point, yeah. why I, you know, I should not believe my parents was the yeah. fact that my friends in school who looked just like those people on the sidewalk. They didn't do that. My friends overseas, whether they were my little American friends from the embassy or my little French friends or my German or Swedish or Danish or Australian friends, they didn't do that. So my parents were wrong. It had nothing to do with the color of my skin. Wow. Well, very quickly, I learned (laughs) (laughs) that I was wrong and my parents were right. (laughs) You know what's fascinating? I'm sorry. You know what's fascinating about that? What's that? that it just shows you how illogical racism is that even exactly. a, even a 10 year old or mo- all those 10 year old all those kids you dealt with through around the world it doesn't even occur to them to do that type of thing right so, you hit the nail on the head man illogical illogical is the, yeah it's the exact definition of racism okay mm. and, and 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 we'll get into illogical and irrational later in this conversation for sure um so when i found this out Mm-hmm. that my parents, you know, had told me the truth. That's mm-hmm. when I formed the question, how can mm-hmm. you hate me when you don't even know me? I didn't understand you. How, how can you hate me? You don't even know me. That fall, uh, we went back overseas to, to another country. And once again, I was around normalcy, you know, where everybody got along. Right. But every time I'd come back home, there'd be some incident, you know? And so I pursued, you know, the question, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? I began by as a as a kid, as a teenager, and on through my adult life, I began buying books, everything I could find on black supremacy, white supremacy, anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. racism, the Ku Klux Klan, the Nazis in Germany, the neo-Nazis over here. I want to learn as much as I could. Because you know, there were no courses, and even today there are no courses, you know, race 101, you know, right. doesn't exist. And right now they're trying to shut shut down everything. You're talking about CRT, we've got to ban these books and blah, right. you know. We try anyway, to act like it's not happening. Exactly, exactly. So uh, I had to self-educate. And uh, I have a vast, vast library on that stuff. And mm-hmm. I learned a lot. 
but my books did not, my books all talked about racism, but they didn't answer the question, why? Why can mm -hmm. somebody hate somebody when they don't know them, mm -hmm. you know? So, and when I would ask people, um, they would say, oh, Daryl, you know, some people are just like that. That's just the way it is. Well, that's not an answer, you know? <laughs> right, right, So right. I kept pursuing. So, lo and behold, uh, I graduate college with my degree in music, and mm -hmm. I become a performer. And uh, I was playing in a country music band. Country music had made a comeback. Wow. So, yeah. But Were you, you know, the only black person in the band? I was the only black person in the band. And usually, <laughs> usually the only black person anywhere we would go. But I'll tell you what, <laughs> these guys that I played with, let me yeah. tell you what, they would defend me nail and tooth if anybody messed with me. Yeah. You know? And uh, they all were good guys. The name of the band was Stone Ridge. But anyway... They they were well established here in this area. I'm in I'm in the state of Maryland now. They had played this place called the Silver Dollar Lounge in Frederick, Maryland, which is about mm -hmm. an hour and twenty minutes north of Washington D.C. And uh, the Silver Dollar Lounge had a reputation mm. for for being an all white lounge. Mm. You know, black people did not go there. Um, you were not welcome there if you were black. Now there were no signs. You know, saying, you know, whites only, no no black people, nothing like that. But you mm. just knew. Mm. And so here I am in the Silver Dollar Lounge. Only black person in the lounge, right? As well as the only black person in the band. And we had just finished our first set of music. We're taking a break. I'm following the band to the band table to sit down. And I feel somebody behind me reach across my shoulder. Now, I don't know anybody in here, so oh. I'm trying to... I'm trying to see who's touching me because I know the reputation. Uh oh, you know, I'm going to have <laughs> right. to you know, knock go. somebody out or what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so so um, I turn around and it's this white gentleman. And he was at least 15 to 18, maybe 19 years older than me. Mm. And uh, he has a big smile on his face. And he's like, man, I sure love your piano playing. And I, I said, thank you. I shook his hand. And he mm. says, this was the first time that he ever heard a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. Hmm. And I, you know, of course, Jerry Lee Lewis is a great piano player. <laughs> right, right. Uh, he was there at the beginning of rock and roll and all he's that. He's a copy. <laughs> he's a copy. Yeah, he's a copy of black blues and boogie woogie piano players, mm -hmm. which he took and he turned into his own style. All right. And uh, he, he became great on his own as well. But um, Jerry Lee learned from black people. And mm -hmm. I proceeded to explain that to him. And he did not believe me. And I said, look, man, I know Jerry Lee Lewis. He's a good friend of mine. He's told me himself. I've done many shows with Jerry Lee. He's told me himself. And, uh, you know, where he, where his influences came from. The guy did not believe that Jerry Lee learned anything from Black people. He did not believe that I knew Jerry Lee Lewis. And uh, But he was fascinated with me. He wanted me to come to his table and let him buy me a drink. So wow. I don't drink, yeah, I don't drink alcohol, but I agreed to go to his table. And um, I let him buy me a cranberry juice. So when the when the drink came, he paid the waitress and he took his glass and he clinks my glass and cheers me. And then he says, wow. you know, this is the first time I ever sat down and had a drink with a black man. And now I'm completely wow. mystified. OK, because see, I didn't grow up here. You know, if, now he if said I had, black man, too. He said he didn't yeah, he use said the black man. No, oh, okay. no, he did not use the N word. Okay. OK, he said black man. And, um, you know, if I had grown up here, I would have picked up on it a lot quicker. Right, right. But given right. my background, having been around so many different people, yeah. I could not imagine this guy is at least a decade and a half older than me. He's never sat down with a black man before. How is this? 
So I'm curious. <laughs> I'm innocent. You know, I'm wow. naive is what it is. Right, and yeah. uh, I said, why? And he did not answer me. He looked down at the table. I said, I said, why? And his buddy sitting next to him said, tell him, tell him, tell him. <laughs> I said, tell me. Because you know, now I'm like mystified. Right, right. And uh, he says, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Well, wow. I started laughing at him because <laughs> now I did not believe him. You know, uh, I know a lot about the Klan. I got almost every book written on the Klan, literally, and I read them all. Mm -hmm. And none of my books talk about how a Klansman will come up and embrace a Black guy, want to praise their talent, and want to buy them a drink and hang out and all that. It doesn't work that way. So this guy is joking with me. So I'm right. laughing. He went inside his pocket, pulled out his wallet, went through it, and handed me his clan membership card. Yeah. What? I, oh, yeah. I, I realized this thing was for real. I stopped laughing because it wasn't funny anymore. Right, right. right. I gave it back to him. But he was very friendly, and uh, we talked about the clan, talked about some other things. But he was very fascinated with me. Mm. He gave me his phone number, and he wanted me wow. to call him anytime I was to come back to this bar with with this band because he wanted to bring his friends, meaning Klansmen and Klanswomen, to come right. see, as, as he put it, the black guy who plays like Jerry Lee. Now, I'm not sure he called me a black guy when he's talking to his friends, but, <laughs> right, that, but that's, right, how right. He, that's how he explained it to me, right? <laughs> right so right. <laughs> I said, okay. So, you wow. know, so we, we, we got on a rotation to be there every six weeks, you know, with different bands, you know, right. the other weeks. So I'd call him on a Wednesday or a Thursday and say, hey, man, you know, we're going to be down at the Silver Dollar this weekend. Come on out. He'd come mm -hmm. both nights, Friday and Saturday. Wow. He'd bring Klansmen and Klanswomen. Now, they came not in the, you know, robes and hoods. Right, they came right. in, you know, regular clothing. Off-duty. Off-duty. <laughs> right, exactly. Off-duty <laughs> yeah. clothes. So they would uh, come near, near the stage, and they'd watch me play with the band. And mm -hmm. then they'd get out on the dance floor. They'd dance, you know, like normal people. Mm -hmm. Some of them couldn't dance, but clan <laughs> <laughs> can't dance. <laughs> hey. So, uh, but you know, but there's a reason for that, and I can explain that later if you want me to. Oh, but okay. uh, oh yeah, you, you clan rhythm. Well, uh, well no oh, kind of rhythm. Lack, lack, yeah. Oh right, right, right. Lack of black rhythm. But yeah, I, yeah. I can explain yeah. that to you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, on on the breaks, I would make my way to his table to say mm -hmm. hello, thank him for coming, and most of the clan that was there. They would hang there. They were curious. They wanted to talk to me, meet me, whatever. Wow. But two of them, every time I start walking towards the table, they would get up and walk to the other side of the room. So mm. they did not want to talk to me. They didn't want to shake my hand. They just wanted to watch me, which was okay with me. Right. So that you know that went on until the end of that year, at which time I quit that band. And I mm. went back to playing rock and roll and whatever, blues, whatever else was going on. And uh, I lost track of the guy. So, you know, I had no reason to hang out with the Klan, right? And, uh, <laughs> you know, so a few years later, it occurred to me, just out of the blue, Daryl, you blew it. You you lost your chance. The opportunity for you, to, for you to find out the answer to your question that has been plaguing you since uh -huh. the age of 10, it fell right into your lap. And uh -huh. you didn't realize it because who better to ask that question of how can you hate me we don't even know me than right. to ask somebody <clears throat> who would go so far as to join an organization that has over a hundred year history of practicing hating people 
who don't look like them and who right. don't believe as they believe. Get back in contact with that guy. Mm. Get him, you know, get him to to connect you with the leader of the Klan for the state of Maryland, and, and sit him down, interview him, write a book because no book had been written by a black author on the Ku Klux Klan face to face interviewing. Right. So mine would become the first. So that's mm. where that started. Now, is that with clandestine? Is that the that's clandestine destined. relationships? Yes. Wow. Well, first of all, let me just say this. How good a player, piano player are you? <laughs> How badass musician are you that the clan is like, damn, I got to meet that N-word. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say I'm as great as Jerry Lee Lewis by any means. I mean, that guy was phenomenal. But the origin of that music is black music. Right. You know, black so you... people invented rock and roll. Right. Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Fats Domino, Bo Diddley. Without them, you would have no Elvis Presley, no yeah. Jerry Lee Lewis, no Beatles, no Rolling Stones, no Led right. Zeppelin, whoever. But I do have to say this. I actually did look you up and I did watch you play. And I don't even know if you need to talk to the clan. You just need to let people see you play. <laughs> like Because people interview you and stuff like that, but I don't know if they realize what a great musician that you actually are. It's a marvel to watch. Like, I think your music alone will break down a barrier. Well, well, yes. You know, music itself transcends race. It transcends gender, socioeconomic mm -hmm. status, mm -hmm. political parties. You know, I'll, I'll give you an example. All right. Let's say that um, day after, you know, let's say this weekend, mm -hmm. I, I, I have no gig. So that's great because... I spend most of my life entertaining other people. Now right. I'm off. I want right. to be entertained, right? right? So there's a club down the street. I'm going to go there so I can hear music. I can dance because normally mm -hmm. when I'm on stage, I'm not dancing. I'm playing, right? So right. Um, I'm going to go to the club. I'm going to chill out and be entertained because mm -hmm. I want to dance. So I go down to the club on Friday night and maybe there's a DJ playing. Maybe there's a live band, whatever. But the dance floor is crowded. There's a good song playing. Everybody's dancing. I want to dance. Mm -hmm. So first thing I do is I look around the bar, look around the club to see if I see a single lady who's by herself. I can ask her to dance. Mm -hmm. I see a lady sitting at the bar and she's by herself mm -hmm. and she's patting her hand on the bar in beat to the to the music. Right. So obviously she likes the song. Right. So I don't know her. I'm going to walk over to her. I say, hey, you know, would you care to dance? Sure. She hops off the bar stool. We walk out onto the dance floor and we're dancing together. If it's a slow song, we're like this, mm. turning around slowly on the floor. Mm. If it's a fast song, maybe we're apart, we're shaking, you know, whatever. At the, I don't even know this woman, right? Mm -hmm. At the end of the song, I escort her back to her seat. I say, thank you. Shake her hand. My name is Daryl. She says, my name is Mary, whatever. And um, I say, so, so what do you do, Mary? And she says, uh, I'm the uh, vice president for the East Coast division of Microsoft. Whoa. 
you know, she's making <laughs> almost a million dollars a year. Right. You know, right. And she says to you, to, to me, Daryl, so, you know, so, so what do you do, Daryl? And I say, uh, <laughs> I'm a, I'm, I'm a bus boy at the, at Applebee's, you know, or someplace, you know, <laughs> not a sponsor, by the way. Right. <laughs> and, uh, so how much am I making nine or 10,000 a year? Where would two people mm. that far apart on the socioeconomic status come this close? Right. Music, music. And instantaneously. That's right. Wow. And it brings you together. You're not thinking, should I ask this person to dance? You know, um, you know, they how much they, do they make? How much do they make? Uh what religion are they? Who do they mm -hmm. vote for? What kind of car do they drive? Mm -hmm. You know, you know, you're not thinking about that. You're thinking about the about the music and, and they're doing the same thing. And wow. it doesn't really matter. You don't you don't even find out their name until after the dance, you know. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> This old white guy at a bar told me one time that he he grew up in Tennessee, used to be racist, and they ne he never heard black music. He had heard the the Perry Cuomo version or the Pat yeah. Boone version, yeah, of a song. Yeah. He well, okay, he, he heard black music, but he heard the <laughs> he heard the cover version, <laughs> right? The watered down, the right. elevator version, <laughs> right, right. But he said that he's him. He was a teenager. Him and his friends snuck off and went and saw. It was like one of those concerts where James Brown, Little Richard, all these people played. Uh -huh. uh, white people weren't, uh, it was separated. They weren't allowed to go in and sit with the black people because it's a right. black black show. Uh -huh. They were told, don't go down and see that N-word music, they told right. him. But right. the, him and his buddies went was sitting behind the fence and saw Little Richard and saw James Brown come on. And he said, he said, he started crying because he was like, I've been lied to. They told me these people weren't dumb. They were not intelligent. They were vi they were uh, no good. And he said, when I saw that, I said, like, how can anybody be dumb and do this? Or how can anybody be hateful and sing love songs like this? And he said he realized he was lied to all of his life. This is when he was a teenager. Yeah, yeah. That's how powerful music is. Sorry. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And, you know, we use the term cover song. The, or the original definition of the word cover song meant when a white artist did a black song. And uh, oh. yeah, that was the original definition of the term cover song. Okay, today it's just when anybody does somebody else's record. But the original definition was when a white artist did a uh. black artist song. And, the, and see what happened was, just like your friend well, mm -hmm. from Tennessee, all right, mm -hmm. <clears throat> uh, white kids back in the 50s were listening to what their parents were listening to. How much is that doggy in the window? All this, you know, hit parade oh, pop stuff, right? And yeah. then they heard, wop, bop, baloo, bop, lop, bop, bop, tutti, frutti, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, whoa, you know, they liked that stuff. It was different. Mm -hmm. And it was coming from the black people, right? Mm. So they started getting interested in black music. Mm. And that's why the record companies, the record companies, did not want little white girls to scream and holler and throw their panties and their bra on stage mm. over a black artist, a black man artist. Right. You know, they so, shouldn't be doing that anyway. But yeah. Well, they should be doing that anyway. <laughs> yeah. you know, they, they would. They would. Here's the difference. They were doing that for Frank Sinatra, but Frank Sinatra's people were paying them to do that for publicity purposes. Oh. Okay. But when Elvis Presley came out. 
they were just doing it naturally. For I'm real, yeah. You, for <laughs> real. And, <laughs> yeah. But Elvis was doing black music. Right. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, you know, you know, you know, once you you go black, you know what they say, right? Right. So in order to <laughs> to lure the white kids back, mm. they had to get white artists to cover those songs. They got people like Perry Como, like Pat Boone. Mm. Now I, I want to say this. Pat Boone is a great balladeer, singer, mm -hmm. great pop singer. Pat Boone is not a rock and roll singer. He had right. the worst version of those Little Richard songs, the Fast Domino <laughs> songs. They did not hit the mark. Okay. But he sold more records than, than they did because the record companies would promote the white artists more than the black artists. Mm. And the radio stations would not play black records yeah. back in the day. So Pat Boone's records, his cover records of Tutti Frutti and Long Tall Sally and Blueberry Hill sold more than Fast Domino and uh, and Little Richard. Wow. You know? But black kids, they wanted the original. Mm. So now, two phenomenons happened in the 1950s in concert halls, music venues. If black people were allowed to go into these things in the first place, mm -hmm. there were seating sections. With with uh, ropes and signs hanging hanging across the seats that would say "colored seating only," mm. seating for white patrons only. How crazy is that? You can't even imagine that today. If if you and your and your white buddy want, wanted to go see Frank Sinatra back in the 1940s, if you could go inside that building, you could not sit with your friend. You had to sit in your section. He sat in his, not designated by the ticket number right. or the row number, but designated by your skin color. If you cross that, mm -hmm. you would be arrested because wow. that was the law. Just like it's a stupid law, but it was the law. Mm -hmm. And you broke the law, you go to jail. Just like Rosa Parks and the bus. Mm -hmm. you know, she couldn't sit in front of the bus. She didn't give a receipt for the white rider. She went to jail. It was the law. It was a wow. stupid law. All right. So most people obeyed the law. They did not cross sit. Mm -hmm. But now here comes the 1950s. This new style of music which was called rock and roll, mm -hmm. which was invented by black artists like Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Fast Domino, Bo Diddley. It was mm -hmm. popularized by great white artists like Elvis Presley, Jerry mm -hmm. Lee Lewis, Buddy Holly, Carl Perkins, Bill Haley. All right? right. When white kids heard this new beat for the first time in the history of American music, white kids and black kids could not sit still. Mm -hmm. They bounced up out of their chairs, they knocked over those signs and they were boogieing and dancing in the aisles together. This caused the police to come into those concert halls, shut down the shows. And in many cities, rock mm. and roll concerts were banned because it was causing race mixing. Now um. understand something. These white kids who were dancing with these mm -hmm. black kids, yeah. they did not know each other. Think back. Because mm. in the 1950s, White kids and black kids did not go to school together. They don't know each other. But yet music caused them to come together and dance. Mm. All right. City officials, city managers began banning rock and roll concerts from coming to their town. Because right. they said it was corrupting white youth. Mm. You understand? This, this new beat. Now that leads me to a question. Hip hop, what do you think of that? <laughs> because that's actually sort of has done the same thing. Listen. Let me say this. Black people have led 
American music since its inception, okay? Mm. Um, white kids will follow black music, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the first form of American music was black music, the blues. In fact, let me digress for one second. Do you know what B.B. King's name is? No. Okay, because his real name is not B.B. Right. B.B. King's real name is Riley, Riley King. So where does B.B. come from? Because mm. he was stand on the street corners of Memphis, Tennessee, playing his guitar with the case open, people walking by, throwing money in there. They didn't know his name. They caught, mm. but he was playing the blues. People called him Blues Boy, Blues Boy, B.B. Oh. So you're short of B.B., oh. Blues Boy King, B.B. King. Oh. He just kept that name. But his real name was Riley, Riley King. And then, and then listen, you know, every record company has a department. They have the country music department, mm -hmm. the, the pop department, and they have one called the urban music department. Right. Urban is code word for black. black yeah. And the urban department, uh, department of the music company has the lowest budget. Check me mm. out. But they put they put the money behind the white artists doing the urban music. Right, right. See what I'm saying? Um, one of the very first rap groups ever was Run DMC. Right. You got you got three three black guys with gold chains around their neck, right? Doing all this rap. And they've been doing it for a couple of years. Yeah. And white kids wanted something new. They didn't want what their parents listened to. They started gravitating towards that. And then, you know, and then overnight. You got three white guys with mm. chains around their neck. They went straight to the top called the Beastie Boys. <laughs> you know? Right, 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 right. And they started selling more. Right. Yeah. We we put out um iced tea. They put out vanilla ice. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Okay. Um, the biggest selling rapper of all time is Eminem. You know, right. he's a white guy, which is fine. He, he does a great job of what he does. Mm. But I'm just showing you where they're putting the money. The power, the power structure. Right. But it's, the, it's not equally divided. But they do outnumber us. So that so mathematically it makes sense that because they go, oh wait, there's somebody that looks like me is rapping. Yeah. I don't think it's so much the audience mm. as it is oh, the power I structure. See. Because because you know, back in the 50s, um, mm. they would not put record companies would not put the black artist's picture on the record cover. Because see, in order to sell records, um, we're talking about way back, right? you had to have airplay on the radio, all right? Black stations, right, our, right. our broadcasting power only went around the neighborhood. The white stations, they could broadcast all across the state. You know, they had mm -hmm. a lot of power, wattage. And so the more people you reach with your music on, on the radio, the more record sales you're going to have. So the idea was to get Black musicians, artists, singers, to be, to be played on the white stations, but if you had their their picture on the record cover, I'm not playing this, you know, <laughs> right, right, right. before they even heard it, right? Yeah. Okay, so this is how people like like the Platters, Nat King Cole, Johnny Mathis, they had right. those smooth, silky voices. Uh, you know, if, if you didn't know what they sounded like to begin with, you wouldn't know whether they were black or white. Uh, now, when you heard Little Richard or Muddy Waters, you know that's a black person. You don't even <laughs> right, have to right, look right. at him, right? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. I mean they're both are great singers. I'm not, I'm not, right. you know, knocking the vocals. I'm just saying the the nuances, you know, the the, the vocalizations. You can mm -hmm. tell one is black and one is white, or or this one, you know, you're not quite sure. So mm -hmm. that's how they got played on those white record stations because they had those smooth, silky voices, and there was no picture on the sleeve. 
Elvis Presley was the greatest, uh, most selling uh, artist of all time. Mm. Elvis Presley was a white man who sounded black. Oh, yeah. And moved moved that way, too, right? Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. I got to I got to ask you what you had. You said you have a theory of why the Klan can dance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's not everybody. OK, you, you've heard the term um, white people don't have rhythm. That's right. a, that's a that's a stereotype. OK, yes. um, there are certainly plenty of white people who can dance, dance their butts off, especially now in TikTok. You see. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and there, and there's some black people who, who, who cannot dance. They got two left feet. All right? right. But in general, that stereotype is true. All right. Most black people have rhythm. Uh, most white people don't. Think about this. European music, the European music masters like Bach, Beethoven, Rachmaninoff, Mozart, um, Brahms, Tchaikovsky, all these people. European music, Western music, is based on melody. Right? It's melodic. And our scale, our Western diatonic scale, is 12 notes, or chromatic is 12 notes. Okay, yeah. the diatonic one is eight notes. You think about a scale from Africa, a pentatonic scale, pentatonic, Penta, five, five notes. Gotcha. Or the blues scale, seven notes. So it's not as melodic. How, how did people from village to village in Africa communicate back in the day? Drums. Exactly, the talking drum. Right. You know, stranger is coming. Boom, 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 boom. You know, there's going to be a wedding. Different rhythms. Text, texting. <laughs> texting, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so in Africa, you were conditioned to understand rhythm. Because that was the conversation where they communicated via the drum from village to village. Because the drum is a part of Black culture from way back. All right. right. In Europe, the focus was more on melody. Mm. The beauty is when you combine the melody with the rhythm. Then that's a really interesting thing. It wasn't lost on me that you play the keys, you know, the keyboards. It's a well, the piano is a is a is a percussion. Right. And the black and white keys. And then you happen to be a person that's bringing black and white together. <laughs> well, what do you what do you think it would take to bring us together? That's basically what you've dedicated your a uh, lot of your life to. I think it takes conversation like we're having right now. People mm -hmm. like you who are not afraid to have these kinds of conversations and share them with people. A lot of people don't want to get involved. Oh, no, we don't talk about politics. Don't talk about race. Don't talk about religion. Don't talk about abortion. You know, whatever. People mm -hmm. stay away from hot button topics. You know, yeah. you are breaking the mold. And that's what it takes. We need to spend more time. Well, we spend too much time talking about the other person, mm -hmm. talking at the other person, and talking past the other person. We need to spend more time talking with the other person. Because mm -hmm. you know what? This is our country and our country can only become one of two things one it can become that which we sit back and we watch it become or two it will become that which we stand up and make it become mm. so we have to ask ourselves the question do i want to sit back and see what my country becomes or do i want to stand up and make it become what i want to see i've chosen the latter i want to stand up and make it become what i want to see and that's why I'm interested in engaging with people. I've seen, I have seen it work in other countries. Okay. Right. So why can't it work in my own? So I've seen it work. 
that leads me to something because we think in groups so much. Like the clan has been like Woodrow Wilson brought uh, right. Birth of a Nation to had it screened. Yep. In the White House. In the White House. If people don't uh, know what Birth of a Nation is, I just want to let them know that that's it was a movie about uh, the rise of the Klan. And, and and all the black people in the movie were actually white actors in blackface. Right. So And, uh, you know, President Warren, Warren G. Harding mm. was sworn into the Klan in Klan the man. green room of the White House. <laughs> right, right. Uh, Harry, Harry Truman, before he became president, was a Klansman for a short time. He didn't right. like it. He got out. Oh, he's smart. <laughs> Supreme Court Supreme Court Justice Hugo Black was in right. the Klan when he got the appointment to be on the Supreme Court. He had to leave the Klan. Well, the, keeping that in mind, what what makes us America so uh, separatist or Klan friendly? <laughs> and because, how do you overcome that? Um, this is a country that owned people as property, mm. and then we considered those people to be three fifths of a human being. And in this country, we have something called the one drop rule. So if you have one drop of black blood in you, you are black. Mm, wow. Other countries don't do that. Right. Techn technically speaking, Barack Obama is, was not was not a, a black man. He was not a white man. He, he, you know, in France, he'd be called a mulatto, half and half. Right. right. Mixed. Um, yeah. Mixed. OK. If your mother is Vietnamese and your father is Italian then you are half Vietnamese, half Italian, mm. all right? But in this country, it doesn't matter. If your mom is black and your dad's white, you're black. Or vice versa, you're still black mm. because of the one drop rule. Because that way, they could discriminate against you because we had segregationist laws. If that person has one bit of black blood, he cannot be allowed in our restaurant. He cannot stay in our hotel. He cannot drink from this water fountain or, or use that restroom. Yeah. Wow. So, so what what's the answer? The answer is we have to have more programs like yours that educate people because listen, this is steeped in ignorance. Mm. Ignorance creates fear. We fear those things of which we are ignorant. If you don't keep that fear in check, that mm. fear will escalate and breed hatred because we hate the things that frighten us. If mm. you don't keep that uh, hatred in check, that hatred will escalate and breed destruction. We want to destroy the things that we hate. Why? Because they frighten us. But guess what? At the end of the day, they may have been harmless and we were simply ignorant. Mm. Uh, and this works for children. It works for adults. It doesn't matter. Um, look at the incident in Charlottesville five years ago at the white supremacist rally. Yeah. All right. On that day, August 12th, 2017, Mm -hmm. There was a lot of ignorance in Charlottesville. There was a lot of fear in Charlottesville. There was a lot of hatred in Charlottesville. What did it culminate in? It culminated in destruction when a white supremacist got inside his vehicle and attempted to murder as many counter-protesters as he could by driving that car full force into the crowd. He succeeded in injuring over two dozen people and murdering one young lady named Heather Heyer. Mm -hmm. Ignorance breeds fear. Fear breeds Hatred, hatred beats a destruction. I say we we are placing our energy and our time and our money in the wrong place. I say the destruction is a symptom, a byproduct of the nucleus, of the root cause. What has been destroyed is not coming back. Forget about the destruction. Forget about the hatred. That too is a byproduct. 
of the root cause. Mm -hmm. Forget about the fear. Same thing. Mm -hmm. Let's address the root cause. The root cause is ignorance. If we cure the ignorance, then there's nothing to fear because we fear that of which we're ignorant. With nothing to fear, there's nothing to hate. With nothing mm -hmm. to hate, there's nothing to get mad about and destroy. The good thing is this. There is a solution for the ignorance. That solution is called education and exposure. Let's mm -hmm. invest our time, our money, our efforts, and our energy into providing that education and exposure to cure that ignorance. That's that. That's where we start. The government will do that? Or all of us. All of us. Okay? Together. Because you, you, you know, the government moves very slow, as we all know. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Where's your paycheck, right? <laughs> so, so, but you know, why do we have to sit around and wait? Why do we have to be reactive? We can be proactive. Okay. Mm -hmm. Listen. Let's 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 just say let's pinpoint the the beginning of the civil rights movement. Let's just say 1955 with mm -hmm. Rosa Parks and on through 1968 with Dr. King. All right. Mm -hmm. During that period. We made some progress, but the, the pages of progress turned very, very slowly because what did the powers that be, which is a polite way of saying the white power structure, what did they see? They saw an ocean of black people marching, having sit-ins, boycotts, demonstrations, et cetera. Mm. There, and there, were, there was only like a smattering of white people, a few white people mixed in with us. They've always right. been white people who who understood us, understood the vision, and wanted to help. So they mixed in. But the mm -hmm. pirates at base saw them and said, "Oh, you know, those are race traders. They're you know sellouts, whatever." And they plugged their ears. They shut us down. Right. So the, the, our progress moved very slowly. All right. Now, mm -hmm. fast forward from yesteryear to last year or two years ago, uh, George, the lynching of George Floyd. All right. Mm -hmm. What did the powers that be see during those protests? Everybody. They saw, exactly. They saw an ocean of Black people and an ocean of white people together marching. Mm. And the pages of progress, zoom, turned very quickly. Right? Mm. While, those, while those protests were geared mostly towards um, police departments across the country, especially Minneapolis, Right. There was an even bigger ripple effect that took place that we never even expected. Um, mm. Worldwide. Well, worldwide. Okay. Yeah. But also that, that right, you know, right. George Floyd was not the first, he won't be the last. All right. Mm. It was, it was, it's been going on. Okay. But now something has changed. Police officers are getting arrested, convicted and put in prison like this. All right. Mm. Um, but the larger ripple effect is NASCAR. They banned the Confederate battle flag from their property, from their grounds. Right. That was ground zero for, for, for the Confederate battle flag. Mm -hmm. uh, legislation being written up and passed very quickly to remove uh, Confederate statues, to change the names of buildings named after slave right. owners. We've never seen progress move that quickly, right? What is the difference between the marches of a couple of years ago and the marches of decades ago, the collaboration, the collective, mm. the, everybody. That's what we need to do. And see, people keep saying, well, you know, it's not our job to teach white people how to treat us. Mm. Look, that's bull, okay? 
let's stop saying I'm not my brother's keeper. Let's start saying I am my brother's keeper. If I have something that you don't know, I'm going to share it with you. You got something that can educate me, help me out, then share it with me. Okay. Right. We all this we are America. This is all our country. We all need to participate in this. This is how we make progress by collaborating, you know, despite the risk to their own health during a pandemic. Mm -hmm. These people left their homes and came out into the streets and joined us to march against this stuff. This is the key. We Mm -hmm. need to bring people together to uh, to accelerate the progress. So you're saying it's it's a humanity problem. It's it's everybody's problem. It's not exactly. just a black, white, Asian hate or whatever. We're fighting against um, a mentality or an idea. Let me ask you a question. D- did the pandemic discriminate? No. Is the pandemic evil? I mean, I felt that it was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So racism is evil. Hate is evil. It doesn't matter, you know, mm. whether you're hating Asians or blacks or, or hating whites for that matter, or Jewish people or gay people, whatever. Hate is evil. It does not discriminate. Right. So it's all our problem. We right. all have to address it together, you know, right. and that will make the difference. You know, when, you know, when you, when you tell somebody it's not your job to teach somebody how to treat you, well, when they've been treating you badly for 400 years, Maybe it's time you do something different, you know? Right, right, right. And that's right. what I'm doing. I mean, I have my share of detractors who, who don't believe in what I'm doing. Right. And they cuss me out and call me every name but my own and whatever oh, else. I saw that. Oh, sorry. In the movie. Mm-hmm. Ex- mm-hmm. Um, Accidental Courtesy. Ac- Accidental Courtesy. I saw that. I realized, wait. So he's he's speaking to the Klan. And he's some of them are listening to him. And yet bl- he's speaking to black people. And they're yelling at him. Right. So, is it harder to speak to black hate groups or white hate groups or I, I I view them all the same. There's no difference between a black hate group and a white hate group. Hate, hate is hate. Hate is evil. And and hate knows no color. Nobody has a monopoly on hate. Mm-hmm. Um you, you might find more of it, you know, among white people here, because as you point out, you know, whites are the majority here. All right? right. So but it, but it's not because it's not because they are white that they hate. You know, they're not born mm. that way. That is a learned behavior. It's not mm. because we're black that we hate white people or those who are black supremacists or whatever else. All right. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a learned behavior. Nobody has a monopoly on it. You mm. know, you either read the wrong book or you, or you react to something, you know, based upon how you were treated or whatever. But it's evil. It's wrong. And it has to be addressed. It's just like, it, it, is, is, it, is it justifiable? If some black guy goes out and hits some white guy in the head and takes his wallet, mm. is it justifiable for white people to hate that black person or hate all black people? No. Um, if 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 somebody abuses sexually abuses you as a kid, mm. then do you do you start abusing your kids when you grow up and have children? You right. continue that cycle. That happens. We know that happens. Oftentimes, you know, when when some child abuser is arrested. And they interrogate him and find out his background. You find out he was abused when he was a kid, right? Right. Does it, does, does it make it right because he was abused that he goes on and does it to somebody else? No, you got to break that cycle. And you break that cycle by having these conversations and mm. by exposing people and educating them. So and let's listening. be our brother's keeper. Because, you, know, you, you know, if you say, it's not my job to teach somebody else how to treat me, then you might as well be satisfied with how you're being treated because you're not going to do anything different. You know what I notice is that people love the um, 
like when you're you join a uh say like the black panthers or mm-hmm. or the the group the tiki torch people the alt-right movements there's, uh-huh. there's something provocative about being that fired up it gives them a chance to be something that they could not be on their own when they have right. everybody else around them heroes that echo heroes you know the group yeah. mentality that echo chamber it empowers yeah. them right okay so, sort of like what our last uh uh president did embolden mm-hmm. certain people mm-hmm. you know he didn't invent them he simply no. gave them a license mm-hmm. uh, but, but let me tell you what's going on here in our country today mm-hmm. i learned about this in 1982 mm-hmm. right the media has known media has known about this for for many years, but they don't talk about it so much. Mm. All right. Do do you remember nineteen ninety nine? Yeah. Um, you remember Y two K? Yes. Everybody was freaking out over when it was yes. going to change the calendar. People yes. thought you know the uh, the computers were going to shut down, their VCRs were going right. to stop working. They're taking <laughs> money out of the <laughs> taking money out of the bank. <laughs> <laughs> and burying it in their backyard, hiding it under the bed, all kinds of crazy stuff. And then 2000 rolled around just another day. Right? right. Okay. So this country was built on a two tier society, uh, white supremacy at the top, mm-hmm. slavery at the bottom. When I was a child, even when you were a child, right? The black population in this country was 12%. Native Americans, 1%. Uh, Latino Hispanic people almost two percent, mm. Asian Americans almost three percent. Whites were around eighty six, eighty seven percent. All right. Today, white people are fifty nine percent. Black mm. people remain at twelve. We're like twelve point nine, so they say thirteen percent. Right. right? Um, Asian Americans have almost doubled. They're almost at six percent. Uh, Latino Hispanic people have more than quadrupled. They're seventeen point something percent. So if you take just 12% Black, 17% Latino or Hispanic, Mm. that right there together is 29% non-white, let alone the Asians or or the Native American or anybody else. This is happening, all right? It is well predicted that by the year 2042, in 2042, for the first time in our history, the United States will be 50-50. 50% white, 50% non-white. Between 2045 and 2050, it's going to flip. And for the first time in our history, white people will become the minority in this country. Now, there are plenty, plenty of white people who don't care. They say, hey, I'm not bothered by that. That's evolution, no big deal. But there is a percentage that does care. Mm. And they are very concerned and and it is their mission to stop this from happening. Are, Are you familiar with the term white flight? Yes, Okay. Used used in real estate a lot. Exactly. Okay. So today, white flight barely exists because the color of the American landscape has changed so much that anywhere you go, there's already somebody there who doesn't look like you. Right. Mm -hmm. So so where do you fly now? Right. So um, what these with the Klan and the alt-right and the neo-Nazis and whoever else tell me, Daryl, I don't want my grandkids to be brown. They call it the browning of America or mm-hmm. white genocide through miscegenation. Mm-hmm. And they're very concerned about that. And so when I first started doing this work, uh, you know, 40 years ago, there was the Klan. There were neo-Nazis. There were white power skinheads. 
Today, you got the Klan, the neo-Nazis, the white power skinheads, the alt-right, the Proud Boys, the Boogaloo Boys, the Three Percenters, the One Percenters, the Vanguard, on and on and on, all the, the Patriot Front, on and on, on, all these groups, right? And they're all mm. saying, come join us, come join us. We're going to take our country back, you know? And mm. people out of fear of their identity being erased are running and joining these groups. These are the people who, who think, you know, we discovered this country, we built this country, we wrote the constitution, and now people who don't even look like us are trying to squeeze us out of our own country. You know, the mm -hmm. great replacement theory, all this kind of stuff, right? Right, right? So they run and join these groups. And then when the group fails to take the country back fast enough, mm -hmm. some of these people say, you know what? If the Klan can't do it or the neo-Nazis can't do it, I'll do it myself. Oh. And they walk into a black church in South Carolina, boom, 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 or wow. into the synagogue in Pittsburgh, boom, 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 right? Or the mm. Buffalo grocery store or the Walmart in El Paso. These mm. people are called lone wolves, right? Mm. They're acting on their own. And as we get closer and closer to 2042, mm -hmm. 2042 is the white supremacist YK. They think 2042 is the end of the world if they don't stop it. All right. Wow. Um, as we get closer and closer to 2042, unfortunately, we're going to see more and more of these lone wolves. Because when, when you have sat on the throne of power for 400 years, you don't want to get off. Look at our last president. He was only on the throne for four years, and he thinks he's still there. You know, so, <laughs> so <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. You've been around the world. You've seen all. You've been around all different types of people. And what is the one common denominator that you see in people? Okay, you... I'll give it to you. No matter where I've gone in this world, whether it's next door to Canada or next mm -hmm. door to Mexico or halfway around the globe, mm -hmm. no matter how different the people may appear to me, they don't look like me. They don't speak my language. They don't worship as I do. I always conclude one thing is that what we all have in common is that we all are human beings and all human beings, regardless of where they are, their, their, their gender, their religion, their politics, whatever, they all have these five things in common. Everybody wants to be loved. Everybody wants to be respected. Everybody wants to be heard. They want their voice to be heard. Everybody wants to be treated fairly and truthfully. Everybody wants the same things for their family as we want for our family. And if we can learn to apply those five core values or any of those values, when we find ourselves in an adversarial situation or in a society or culture in which we are unfamiliar or uncomfortable, yeah. I can guarantee you that our navigation of that situation, that culture, that society will be much more smooth and much more positive. And that's what we need to do. Learn those five core values and begin applying them. Mm. Is that in your book, your next book? It, it'll be, <laughs> yes, it'll, it'll be in my next book, which is almost finished, by the way. Oh, cool. And and uh, you're looking forward to that. What's the title of your book? Coming right up? now, the working title is The Clan Whisperer. The Clan Whisperer. I got you. Go ahead. Yeah. You know, I encourage people to do what I call walk across the cafeteria. It can be done physically or it can be done virtually. Mm -hmm. Like you and I are doing it virtually right now. Right. And we don't right. know each other, but we're walking across and sitting with each other and talking. Learning right? from each other. Learning from each other. Okay. So what I've noticed is, especially in this country, 
in in schools or in companies, corporations. Um, there may be diversity amongst the people, and they may even work together on the same project. They might even share the same cubicle in which they're working on that project. Mm -hmm. But what happens at 12 noon? They go downstairs to the cafeteria, mm -hmm. and then Blacks sit with Blacks, Hispanics sit with Hispanics, mm -hmm. this group sits with this group. They self-segregate. So does that mean that they're racist? No, not at all. Uh, mm. People tend to feel more comfortable around familiarity. Right. right? Um, so that's why they do that. But I would say once or twice a week, get up from your comfort group at lunchtime and walk across the cafeteria and sit at somebody else's table because you have a lot to learn from them. You have a lot to teach them. Mm. And in the process, you will make a new friend. This is how we learn about it. This is what I'm talking about. You don't have to wait for the government to uh, to to change right. to, to to enforce something. Did Martin Luther King wait for the government to change the the bus law in Montgomery, Alabama that yeah. you know that that got rose? No, it, it was a grassroots proactive thing, right? The people changed the got got those laws changed. We can do that. We can learn about one another. We all are here together, and this country is becoming more and more diverse. You know, yeah. so we, so let's learn about one another. Yeah. That Klansman. Um, in, in the Silver Dollar Lounge. What did he do? He walked across the cafeteria. In, in this case, he walked across the lounge. He didn't know right. me, but he saw something that he liked. Oh, he heard something he liked, the music that I was playing, the Jerry Lee Lewis or whatever. Right. He walked across the lounge and sought me out. And then we ended up becoming friends and he learned a lot from me. Wow. Okay. So this this yeah. works. This works. What you just said there, sorry, it just... Just, no, no, made me, just blew my mind because I just realized that I was just thinking about you in the Silver Lounge. Like, uh oh, you know, hope he's safe. <laughs> but but what I didn't realize is that for a Klansman, that's pretty ballsy. He's walking towards a black man to talk to him about his music and shook your hand and then came back to see you play. over. Like, yeah. so he's and brought his friends and brought his friends. It's like the two groups coming together, both taking steps. Basically, you were both in that dance together. That's right. But you also made me think of something else. A, uh, like a bad idea is not just black, white, or anything. Like Uncle Rufus in the boondocks. Mm -hmm. Sometimes uh, some of the worst things that are said about black people come from the mouths of a black person. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes black people hate themselves too. Right, sure. So what do you do about that? Like, Well, so I mean, you know, that that falls into any category. I mean, I know white people who are the same exact way. <laughs> right, and, right. And, and I know black people, too. So, I mean, nobody, you know, that's ignorance. You have stupidity and you have ignorance. Mm. All right. And some people define those two words as being synonymous. For mm. me, no. An ignorant person is someone who makes a bad choice or a wrong decision because he or she does not have the facts or the proper information to make the right decision or mm. a good choice. You give that person the facts, then you have alleviated their ignorance. All right. Mm. They can make the right choice. A stupid person is someone who has the facts and still makes the wrong choice. Mm. So for example, if I have a room and I paint the walls in the room and I don't post any signs that say wet paint, stay off the wall. Anybody who walks into that room is ignorant to the fact that the walls are wet. And they might go and lean up against the wall 
and now they have paint on their clothing because they didn't know. I can right. cure that by educating, by putting up signs that say, stay off the walls, wet paint. I can stand in the doorway and tell each person coming in, hey, folks, gather around the center. I just painted these walls 10 minutes ago. They're still wet. Got so it. now everybody has the proper information. Everybody has the uh, the facts to make the right decision, right? Mm. And they gather in the center, except one person goes and leans on the wall, and now he wants to know why is there paint on his clothes? <laughs> it's because he's stupid. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, you, we, we can cure ignorance. The cure for ignorance is education. Right. Unfortunately, there's no cure for stupidity. And nobody, <laughs> and nobody has a monopoly on, on, on ignorance and nobody has a monopoly on stupidity. Like you said, a bad idea is a bad idea. Whether, whether it's a white person expressing it, a black person, a Jewish person, a Muslim, a Christian, a Hindu, or an atheist, a bad idea is a bad idea. So you educate and give them a good idea. Yes, Mr. Davis. <laughs> On that note, thank you so much for joining. Thank you, man. Stay in touch. Is there anything you want me want the audience to know about you, or or site that they could look and find you? Or... Well, uh, DarylDavis.com, D-A-R-Y-L Davis.com is my uh, website. You know, feel free to drop by and uh, say hello or something. And let's uh, let's consider this part one. So we have to do a part two sometime. Yeah, definitely. I would love this. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much for doing this. I mean, thank you for having me, and thank you for you know for sharing this you know this great work you know that you do as well you know, with, with with these audiences. I mean, there is no substitute for education, and yeah. I, and I'll leave you with my favorite quote of oh, all time. Okay. My favorite quote of all time is by Mark Twain, the author. Mm-hmm. It's called the Travel Quote, and Mark Twain said, "Travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness." And many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. And that is so true. All all of this travel that I've done does not make me a better human being than somebody else. But what it does is it gives me a a better and broader view of humanity. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you.